You are listening to Humanities Engaged, where we take a closer look at the value of a liberal arts education. I'm Steve McFarlane, and I teach philosophy in the Division of Humanities at the University of Minnesota Morris. I'm joined by UMM student and brains of the operation, Adam Kretz. Say hi, Adam. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for listening. You'll hear me chime in occasionally during the interview with a couple questions, and I'll join Steve afterwards to discuss what we learned. We are coming to you from the University of Minnesota Morris, made possible with funding from the Mellon Foundation. Please join us as we interview UMM faculty to learn how they teach and why they teach. Today's guest is Dr. Julie Eckerly. Dr. Eckerly is a member of the English Department in the Division of the Humanities, and she's also affiliated with the GWSS, Gender, Women, Sexuality Studies. Dr. Eckerly received her PhD from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. We bring you now to our interview. I mean, I always loved English literature, but when I actually went to college, I wanted to be a journalist. I was going to be a journalist for a very long time. So I double majored as an undergrad at a liberal arts institution in English and journalism, but I struggled pretty much the entire four years to figure out which I was going to do. Um, it was more deciding not to do journalism than it was deciding to do English, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. But I think that it was a pretty clear path, probably, for most people looking in. They could probably see I was headed that route. Did you yeah. Did you enjoy writing, reading? Like, what was the... What what pulled you into because uh, you know there's a lot of over there's differences between those but there's a lot of Absolutely. overlap right so. Absolutely, I was always a reader, mm-hmm. so I that was the first passion. But mm-hmm. I think what I learned is that I loved I loved just working with the text and yeah. analyzing a text, and it was very satisfying always, even when I was an undergrad, to um, just spend time with really difficult texts mm-hmm. and feel like I was accomplishing something by reading them so I think that um (laughs) that's actually where I am now I you know I do Shakespeare it's not like I do things that are necessarily easy to read there's a a labor involved just in the reading Mm -hmm. but that's part of the satisfaction I take from it yeah and so and then so how did you get into the specific so so what are some specific research areas that you're working in yeah so the thing that I do most often right now is that I uh, right now my current project is looking at early modern women's life writing so there's a lot of things to explain there but uh, um, for (laughs) early modern women it tends to be 16th and 17th century women that I look at and life writing is a pretty broad term, but it's a flexible term um, that I like because it is so broad. So it covers biography, autobiography, personal marginalia, diary, letters, right? Any kind of um, self-writing or biographical writing about others. And so in the 16th and 17th century for women, that can be all kinds of things. Occasionally it's a diary, Uh, more often it's letters. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I do right now is I go to libraries and I read whatever archival material I can find. And I work on um, how women represent themselves and women more generally in Mm -hmm. their life writing. So that's what I do now. And that's that's a bit of a digression or a move away from literature. Mm -hmm. But what I think holds it together for me and what I explained to my students as well and probably what holds everything I do together is that I view words as all words, all, all written text as rhetorical acts. And so mm-hmm. when you're analyzing a piece of literature, when you're analyzing a speech act, you're looking at what a person is trying to accomplish and why and how they go about doing that. Mm-hmm. And so looking at life writing as a way 
to understand women's manipulation of text or manipulation of context or sense of self, right? All of mm -hmm. these things get wrapped up into those texts that I look at and it's really great fun. Mm -hmm. um, but it's but it also uses that analytical part of my brain mm -hmm. that I that I've always liked to use. And was there any uh, particular teacher or groups of teachers that got you on this journey that you want to yeah. give a shout out to or And you mean the whole anybody. journey. Yeah. <laughs> from I mean the if beginning on. If, um, there's, if there's an influential or Yeah, you know, um, there are a lot of teachers. The first one that I think I typically think of as one of the best teachers I ever had, although he was not um, a literature teacher at all, mm -hmm. uh, was a seventh grade biology teacher. Yeah. And I talk about this a lot because it's just a favorite memory of mine. But he had us um, create creatures. And we had to, so once you decided on your creature, you had to create its nervous system, its mm -hmm. endocrine system, its neurological system. And it was, to me, it was a really complicated project. I also took it very seriously. And I had multiple pages of my creature and explanation. And I think what I like about that, and the reason I, I think about it a lot, is because it's both creative, but yeah. also synthesizing it's not busy work you yeah. have to fully understand and explain what you're doing um, and that's something that has carried over I think it's mm -hmm. really important not to give students busy work and that um, the exercises you give them have to be meaningful and yeah. um, and and force them to do hard thinking and hard labor so I so that was great I love that and I've often thought about that assignment I had great college teachers, um, one English professor in particular named Kathy Carlson, and I think when I did kind of shift over ultimately to English away from journalism, it was in part because I wanted to be her when I grew up. <laughs> she had a passion for Chaucer and English literature in general, so she's certainly a mentor figure. But I think so much of education, and this I tell my students all the time, is about serendipity. It's about who you meet at a certain point in time, mm -hmm. could never have predicted that I would do Renaissance literature, and yet I had certain professors at certain points of time who introduced me to texts that it just set me down that path. So, yeah. yeah. It was serendipity so. that I met Adam. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so you mentioned that creative uh, but still yeah. analytical yeah. Uh, assignment with the, crea yeah. the creature. Uh, do you try to? What kind of assignments do you give? To are you are you interested in the same things in your teaching as you were? In I I am. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I I'm not a creative writer, mm -hmm. and I always have to tell my <laughs> students that I'm not a creative writer myself. So when I ask them to do creative writing assignments, I'm not judging them on the quality of the creative writing so much as I am how they are incorporating principles that we've been studying into their writing. So let me give you a, a couple of examples. Mm -hmm. um, when I teach uh, Paradise Lost in my early British Lit survey, I, we also read Genesis. We read books one to three of Genesis and the creation story. And then we think about the, challenge, the challenges that it poses to, to basically tell that narrative, knowing, of course, that Adam and Eve are going to eat the apple, that you can't change that piece, right? Mm -hmm. But what things might you be able to fill in? Because books one to three in Genesis are quite small, and they don't give a lot of information. So I'll have students write a creative assignment where they imagine a version of the fall. So that's the creative piece, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not going to 
expect them to be future novelists and have creative skill necessarily, although many of our students do. But, uh, but what I'm looking for is how can you justify? So they have to write the creative piece, but then they often have to come back and provide a justification. How can you justify making this choice um, in light of the text that we have, right? If, if you do make this choice, how then can you explain Eve ultimately eating the apple or, or whatever it is? Mm -hmm. And it gives them a really good sense of what it is Milton's doing when he's writing a 12-book epic on the fall and tries to fill in loads of gaps in Genesis, but without changing the fundamental nature of the story, right? So it, it forces them to think about it in a different way. So... Yeah, not just reading this great work. It's worth exploring, mm -hmm. breaking down. I'm sure all that's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. but, Absolutely. But if you have them try to work with the same constraints to write it, maybe you have a, a insight into what's happening that you wouldn't have if you were only reading. Is that the I think absolutely. Yeah. I think you have more insight. And I think you also develop a different respect for the writer's task. So you're so you're developing a, a respect for what Milton's doing, uh, whether you like his choices or not. Mm -hmm. I think you're developing a respect for the kind of restraints within which he's working. But yeah, you're also getting insight into the story and you're getting, I hope, and I believe, although this might seem counterintuitive, greater respect for the text itself because mm. you're you're having to think about what it actually does and mm. if you want to take it in a different direction that's fine but you have to be able to explain why yeah and when i teach uh shakespeare for example when i teach uh i do a well i do a shakespearean adaptations course for intellectual community the first year student seminar sometimes and then I also teach some Shakespeare courses in our regular curriculum mm -hmm. but one of the things I like to do there it's the same thing when we look at adaptations whether it's a film or a story or a novel I consider myself a bit of a purist but I always tell them you know you're gonna you're gonna see a Shakespeare play or you're gonna see a movie and it's gonna set it in a new time period and technically speaking that's okay that's the person's creative choice mm -hmm. but the best choices are going to be the ones that where that choice illuminates something that is already in Shakespeare's text. So can you, when, when we analyze a theatrical production or a film production, those are the questions I try to ask, you know, okay, so this one's set in the 19th century. Uh, what does that mm -hmm. illuminate yeah. right in the text? And sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it doesn't, in which case we might decide that it's not a very, effective adaptation. But I teach them to ask those questions. And what I think that's doing then is teaching them respect for the text yeah. that we have, as well as for the choices that we make. Mm -hmm. And it also, I hope, teaches them that when we do analysis of text, which is really the most important part, I think, of, of being a, an English major and studying literature, that when you do analysis of text, you have to be fair to the text itself always and mm -hmm. you have to be able to use textual evidence and justify what you do it's not just a free-for-all you know yeah. this means this because i think so well okay you might think so <laughs> but a certain word or a certain image or something led you to that so mm -hmm. let's see if it's a fair interpretation based on the text yeah. that you have at hand and by its very nature so this assignment matches some of the things we've been hearing in these interviews mm -hmm. that when you give students ownership over the work that they're doing, they're going to kind of internalize it more and remember it better, and they've grappled with themselves. So so you give some parameters they have to work within, but then they have to do it, right? right? So, right. so, so it's, their, it's their thing that they're doing, and they're, they're forced to, like, run into the obstacles that everyone runs into mm -hmm. to see that 
those are there that you might right, not, yeah. right absolutely yeah. absolutely and that it does require care and thought mm-hmm. and I think that I don't know when I look at education you know education today or whatever <laughs> or what's going on in the high schools so much to me seems kind of non-thinking work mm-hmm. uh, busy work or fill in the blank or right and I, I think students come in and they there are exceptions, of course, but they don't necessarily understand that to do, to be a thinker and to to be a good student is not just to put the right answers into mm-hmm. the quiz, right? But mm-hmm. to do the hard thinking and the hard labor, and it takes time. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just read a text and think you know it. You read a text and then you probably go back and read it again, or you write questions that you want to ask, or you write about it for a bit, or you take a few days away and then go back. You use marginalia, you take notes in your text, that there's an engagement. Mm. And if you're not engaging, then I think you're taking some, even without knowing it, taking a kind of easy way out, right? That's kind of what I just want to keep reiterating is to to engage with the things that we're thinking about, whether whatever field we're in, whatever subject we're talking about. And that comes back to critical thinking, which, of course, mm-hmm. at a liberal arts institution, we we all say we're doing and want to do, <laughs> and I hope we're doing, but that you don't just let stuff, right? You don't just let images come to you or text wash over you. You actually engage with them. That's yeah. what I want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so then... Uh, sometimes we ask people if you could quote unquote fix one thing about how your field is taught very general very vague mm-hmm. not picking out anybody in particular or any school even not saying right. it's here right but um so that sounds like something that's might be up the the kind of idea that you have is that how can you get them to engage more rather than just check the correct answer yeah. the right answer or something i think that's a problem not just with english disciplines i think that's a huge problem problem in general um so I don't know when you ask what would I what would I fix fix in an English discipline Mm -hmm. in particular that's a really hard Mm -hmm. question for me and I'm actually not sure that I have answers I mean I do feel there are specific things I could probably change different ways we could do curriculum but I see the bigger problem within education as a whole and I I guess particularly at high schools but also beyond that where students Mm -hmm are very grade-driven, and I was certainly grade-driven as a student. I understand where it comes from. But I'd like to be able to somehow move out of that. I'd like to convince students that that there's that there's labor involved and mm-hmm. hard labor and that that's a good thing mm-hmm. with um, learning to think and progress as a thinker. And I think that's that requires a cultural shift. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the answer to that is. But, you know, we teach in English disciplines. We tend to teach the writing courses. So we teach writing for the liberal arts here. It's a course that students are required to take. Rarely, if ever, do they want to take that course. I think at the end of it, they're grateful that they took it. But part of the reason that they often don't want to take it is because it pushes them. It pushes them outside of boundaries. You write a draft of a paper, that's actually the easy part. How do you revise it? How do mm. you engage your own writing in the way that I'm asking them to engage other people's writing later in the game? How do you do that? And how do you make that a productive experience? And how do you push your thinking to a level that allows you to develop an idea or a thought or a paper? That's hard. It's also incredibly gratifying when you figure out how to do it and when you figure out that revising a paper doesn't just mean 
fixing the spelling errors, right? But it, but it requires something different. So I, that course, when I teach that course, I have students think about writing and, and everything we do kind of through the lens of the liberal arts and through the educational system because I want them to be critical thinkers about themselves as learners as well as about institutions. But for me, that's an example that we tend to move away from what requires us to do hard work that that requires a lens turned in on ourselves, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Um, I guess as I'm talking and as I'm maybe working through this, if I could change anything, it would be to have more writing across campus. It would be mm-hmm. to have more disciplines involve writing mm-hmm. in a deeper way than just you're going to submit an essay, I'm going to give it a grade, but, uh, but a real engaged kind of writing. Mm-hmm. But that's not for me to decide, right? English disciplines at least do already do quite a bit of writing. Yeah, one thing I wonder, you, you mentioned that students are very grade-driven, and I, and I certainly see this, but um, just to maybe flush that point out a little bit, why isn't it the case that you know students are grade-driven and students want to get good grades and that the, that wanting to get good grades will force them to do the hard labor. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it does, but I don't think that's always the case. Um, yeah, I mean, in an ideal world, right, the grade would, I, I think you're right, the grade would push them to do well. They'd learn the material in order to get the grade, but then they'd have the material and then they'd they'd go on. But of course, we all know that you can memorize for a, for a test and forget it later. You can be a good student who knows how to give the right answers and get a good grade, but you may not have pushed yourself in any way. Um, you've probably just learned to be a good student, right? Um, and this isn't a critique of those good students. It's not a critique of the straight-A student. I, I was one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but I think what happens is that you get to a point where you only know, and I've actually had some really good conversations with students in my senior seminar this year about this. You get to a point where you don't know how to evaluate your own work unless someone gives it a grade that tells you it's quality work. And we're all, right? I, I submit an essay for a publication and I, I'm eager to get good feedback, right? We all thrive on that kind of information and feedback. But if we're driven by the idea itself or the need to communicate an idea in a certain way, Hopefully, right, we develop more resilience as, as people and as thinkers, and hopefully we can value that process in itself. I, I don't know. I'm speaking kind of utopia here, right, because <laughs> this isn't how our world works. But I'm feeling, I'm feeling this particularly because I'm seeing a number of students, particularly female students, if I can throw that in, who are struggling with anxiety and who are particularly attached to grades. And I just wish sometimes that they could enjoy they're going to get good grades because of the kind of students they are. I wish they could enjoy the process of thinking and studying without all the anxiety that has become associated with grade earning. Yeah, this, this really resonates with me right now because I'm in the midst of writing this philosophy paper, and there's this definitely this, this uh, point which I get to with certain papers or even just learning certain subjects where I can kind of go on let's just call it the coasting mode right. and you right. know, get a certain amount out of it. And then yeah, you kind of hit this point where it's like, well, man, you know, if I really want to make this good, I'm really going to have to, you know, put on those uh, extra weights or whatever. Yeah. And so, yeah, it is, it is a tricky thing because on the one hand, you're just so happy just to have the draft that you can turn in. 
Of course, I get yeah. that. <laughs> and sometimes you do that, right? And sometimes you need to do that. And sometimes life circumstances require that you do that. And, and you'll get the grade and, you'll, and whatever. But you wouldn't want to always do that, right? And, and to truly develop as an individual, as a thinker, to truly um, get the most out of what four years at a liberal arts institution are about, I would think we want to do the work, right? We want to get the satisfaction instead of turning it in and saying, okay, I coasted on that one. We want to be able to say, wow, I hit a wall on that. There was this really rough moment, but I took some thinking time. I came back. I pushed it into a different area. I feel really good that I tried that, right? I took a risk or something. I think those are the moments that are most exciting for all of us. So, As a final kind of note on this, you know, one thing I, I think about is that maybe, you know, maybe students, some students haven't had a time where they've gotten to like uh, – really be intellectually stimulated like they haven't they haven't reached this point where they're like wow i am thinking in a way i've never had before and i'm seeing the world a new way and i'm kind of like feeling the power of my intelligence or Mm -hmm. something like that i don't know how to describe it but um so i'm kind of interested in the idea that maybe a lot of students haven't encountered that and so it's like you don't know what you're missing when you're going into you're taking your classes you're focused on the a you're focused on just like getting past this you know college that you signed up Mm -hmm. for and you don't really realize that there is this other fruit to be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And so I was just wondering, you could describe that in terms of, you know, you being an English professor, like what is that, um, what does the intellectual stimulation look like? Or what is, what is, uh, could you just describe what it means to get to a high English <laughs> level? Again, not, not the best what does it, It's it. a hard, that's a really hard question to answer. I mean, I think there's, there is the satisfaction in feeling that you've, maybe broken a code in understanding mm. a text. Not not even like an original code, right? But just that you've spent the, enough time with the text to, to understand how it works in a way that other people who have also spent a lot of time with the text understand how it works. There's that. Um, I think, oh, it's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> I think there's a, a remarkable satisfaction that comes when you when you have moments where you see a symbol working or you you catch a, a theme that you didn't see in one way, but now that you've connected it through lots of other chapters or lots of other acts, suddenly you see it in this way and it kind of opens up a text for you. I think there's a real value there. But I, if I could change kind of the tactic just to, or the angle a little bit, because mm-hmm. what you're asking is what it, what it feels like, and I'm clearly having trouble articulating that. But, what I, but I'm more intrigued by your point that, some people don't know right or maybe haven't had that moment and so Mm -hmm. and then my brain immediately says well how do we get them there and so one of the things a few of the things I do one of them is I think we just have to model constantly what it means to live a life of um, in which your intellect is engaged right and so for me that's really easy when I teach about Shakespeare I'm ridiculously excited and I'm sure I you know I look like a bit of a a doofus some days but students see that there's an excitement there or I show I'll take out a text and I'll show them how much I've written on it and I'll have said I you know I've read this text now I can't tell you how many times I still take these notes I still write on it I still engage I still ask questions this is what I see this time that I didn't see before so I think there's a model a modeling that happens I think there's also, you, you throw the students in, you do some modeling, you hope they have an epiphany. If they don't, hopefully they're getting it somewhere else or there's something going on at college in general that engages them. And so I also teach a study abroad course, and that's been a remarkable 
uh, way of getting students engaged that really stimulates them, even if they hadn't perhaps made certain connections before. You throw them in an environment, you give them material. We go to Ireland, we have a great time, and their brains are working over time. That's an experience, <laughs> right, that people get. So. Do, you, do you want to cool. expand on that study abroad? Who, yeah. who, who goes into it? Oh, it's it fantastic. And, yeah. yeah, so Jimmy Scriver and I co-teach this course. We've taught it three times now in Ireland, and it's called Irish Text and Context. Jimmy is uh, in the art history program. He's an art historian and also archaeologist. So Irish Texts and Context works on the idea that Irish literature as is truly with all literature, but it's easier to demonstrate in Ireland, comes out of a particular context. It's influenced by landscape. It's influenced by the mythological world and history. It's just richly rooted in place. So we go to a number of places around Ireland, and we try to demonstrate the link and talk to students about how a particular land, for example, inspires the literature. So a really good example, the most vivid perhaps, is we go to the Aran Islands off the west coast of Ireland. We take a ferry out, we ride bikes around. It's incredible. And um, and it's very lovely as a tourist destination. <laughs> but we try to think about what it would be like to have lived there before there were boats with motors, right? And the, the, the real danger of living on that island, uh, it was a life, a hard, hard life drawn out of the sea and also out of a rather barren landscape, which the students see by being there. And then we read some, we read a play by John Millington Singh, which is about that life. And it brings it together, right, in a way that it never would because they stand on the cliff and they look out and they see what it would mean to drop off that cliff or they see what it would mean to try to raise something out of this particular rocky landscape. So we really vividly connect text and context. Uh, we do a lot of kind of archaeological reading of landscape um, that Jimmy guides. And it's just a wonderful, it's, we've had three great groups now and it's, it's a wonderful way for students to, to realize how important place is to the way that texts are written, the way people imagine themselves, the way people tell their stories. So, and if a fantastic. student wanted to yeah. participate, to well, who, who, which students would be eligible or English any, majors? Any or? student could mm -hmm. be eligible. We, uh, it obviously appeals to English majors because of mm -hmm. the text focus. Mm -hmm. It appeals to a lot of students who have an archaeology interest. It appeals to, well, th you can be anybody and anyone. We, we've welcomed students from all majors and some from the Twin Cities as well. But I think the, the piece that really connects to me for UMM students is a kind of environmental piece, right? Mm -hmm. So anyone who's interested in sustainability and thinking about um, the role of the environment, because we look at it not only literally, we're standing in this field and how did you know this particular environment influence a text, but we're also looking constantly at the impact of tourism on the environment mm. and the way that you kind of balance the, the desire to get people to a place and to see a place with the um, preservation of the materials that are found there, the materials that already exist there. So it, so there's just constant, it, it taps into so many different areas of interest. Yeah. So students, you know, UMM has a really nice selection of study abroad courses every year. We've been offering this every two years, but yeah, go to the ACE office and find out what the <laughs> options are on the table. But there's absolutely no stipulation that you have to be yeah. a certain major. You can just want to go to Ireland because your family's from there. Yeah. A lot of students go for that reason. Awesome. Yeah. Sounds like a great opportunity. It's really fun. Yeah, so yeah, 
I'm, I'm not an English uh, um, student, but there might be English students who are listening, but even for just UMM students or college students in general, what, what advice do you have? You know, you've already talked a little bit about, you know, engaging really, you know, deeply and, and doing the heavy lifting, but is there any other advice you would give to students to get the most out of their classes when they're sitting there in class, they're listening to the professor, you know, they're doing their assignments? How do they get the most out of those classes? How do they, they learn the most? And so again, yeah, maybe for your classes in particular, and mm-hmm. then also just in general. Yeah, well, I think in general, it's stuff we've all heard, right? You take you take notes, <laughs> you do something that because writing something down um, solidifies it in your brain in a different way than just listening. So you take notes, you talk to professors, you work with students in study groups, you read a text for for literature courses. You read a text more than once. You read it multiple times. You look up all the words you don't know. I know that sounds crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Um, marginalia, which is a is an early modern concept, but is simply uh, taking notes and writing in the margins and, and, and engaging, again, with the text. So I think that there are lots of ways. But I, I also think making human connections are really important. So if you connect to a faculty member or other students or you do a study abroad, right, I think you have to hit, hit the intellectual work from lots of levels and lots of different angles. So any way that you can immerse yourself in a community. And if that's going to speakers or readings, we have so many lovely readings on campus. <laughs> we have a day that our poet and writer and teacher, Athena Kildegard, organizes of, um, and, and you guys might know about it, but a, she does a marathon poetry reading. I think this was the fifth year, so she picks a poet and you, you just sign up to read and you come in and you read, and even if it's a 10 minute increment, right? And that develops a, a little community of people around poetry. So I think you have to, you have to engage in a, in a variety of ways in the material, but always ask questions. And, and focus, focus on what's happening in the classroom and not on what time it is and not on mm. when you have to pack up your backpack. Because yeah. then you miss, you miss a couple minutes of class um yeah i don't know but try to have fun right try to have fun with it too um it doesn't have to be just again something you check off a list and i and i as i say all of this i realize that it could sound really um you know negative (laughs) like students don't take things seriously and i don't mean to sound like that at all i think umm students are of all the places i've taught umm students are the most engaged the most earnest i think the things that i'm talking about are just things that i see more generally in education and that worry me and that especially in, a, in an age where there's liberal arts and humanities kind of under attack, there's a, a desire on, mar- on my part to remind people about why we do what we do and why it matters and hoping that students will, if they're not already engaged because they want to be engaged, will find a way to, to be thinkers who are critically engaged in the world. That's all we're really looking for. So, yeah. But more students are halfway there most of the time. (laughs) Go UMM. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, are there any big ideas, research questions, themes, thematic research topics, or, Mm -hmm. you know, just some big ideas Mm -hmm. that you hope all students take away? You mentioned, you know, the context of the writing Mm -hmm. matters Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So if, if you had to give like a quick pitch, like this is the main thing I hope all students come away from my classes thinking about yeah is there something like that yeah I think it's really simple I think it's this idea about rhetoric that all words mm-hmm. um have a have an agenda really right all words are doing work they're accomplishing something 
Um, and, and what is it that they're doing? And we need to be critical readers of those words. Um, I'll, I'll give you just a, an example because it's a class that I've taught that has been, I think, pretty successful, or so students say. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a course that I teach for both English and gender, women's, and sexuality studies. And it's um, on gender and literature and culture, but I do it on a courtly love focus. So I, I basically start the students off in this medieval material about you know knights and ladies, and it, it seems incredibly far removed <laughs> right, from anything that we might think about today. But uh, the, my goal in that class is to actually show that this idea about romantic relationships between the way men and women interact and the way men um, are supposed to treat women, right, put them on a pedestal, so to speak, that those notions of romance that began as a literary kind of idea have informed the entire tradition of Western literature and are still at work in our culture now. So we start in the middle medieval period and then we come to the present day. And over the course of the semester, I increasingly write them and pointing out where we see this all mm. over, all around us. And they start to see it everywhere, mm. right? So um, for a while there, I don't think it's as popular now, but for a while there, we always ended up talking about Twilight, right? And the idea that the romantic hero, Edward in Twilight. The, the young adult the vampire, vampire Right, the young mm. adult vampire series, and that Edward, the, um, the vampire, there's also the, the werewolf guy, but then there's the vampire guy. And the vampire guy, he's, he's represented, right, as this extraordinary, you know, ideal, just the kind of guy you'd want for your boyfriend except for the vampire part, right? <laughs> um, but what, we, what I start to point out is that there are so many aspects of his character that are informed by this really old, right, medieval tradition, the way that he feels he has to take care of her, protect her, which ultimately means standing outside her window and watching her sleep and um, hoping that students start to see that they're really there are dangerous ramifications of something that appeared to start initially as a, as a very innocent notion about romantic relationships. And so I, what, what I'm doing with that instance and why I bring up this example is because if you look at, you know, you go to a, a movie and a, a romantic comedy that you're not just taking it in, you're not just absorbing it, but you're actually thinking about, sure, enjoy it and go away, mm -hmm. right? But, but that you're also thinking about, well, what do these literary modes, what do these um, rhetorical interactions, what do they teach us? What are they teaching us about gender relations or about how to be in love? What, what kinds of um, models are we setting for ourselves? And, and again, it's just a critical thinking thing, mm -hmm. right? But if you go out in the world and you look at that and you say, okay, I really enjoyed that novel and I don't mind saying I really enjoyed that novel, but I'm also gonna acknowledge that I actually think that's a bit of a kind of dangerous <laughs> way to interact, you know, between men and women, then you're you're doing a kind of thinking and you're taking mm. a lesson from the classroom that you can explore out in the world. So I always, I learn a lot from my students when I teach this courtly love class because I'm not very educated on online dating <laughs> or certain communities. And, yeah. you know, so they always bring the newest stuff to me yeah. and I kind of give them the foundation of the text. But we work together to really talk about how our language about romance, how our the stories we tell ourselves about romance, how those establish or or um, reinforce certain gender dynamics, and those are things they're experiencing every day, mm -hmm. right? So it so we it seems that we've started in this really far away space, but we bring it into the kind of modern moment. And I'm asking students just think, right? Just mm -hmm. think about what we are reinforcing, what you read, what words do. Words have a lot of power. And that kind of dovetails with our next question, which is methodologically, mm -hmm. like what are some skills that they can practice from your classes? And well, it sounds like, you know, 
thinking in terms of rhetoric and yeah. thinking and thinking of, of like what these symbols you know, like with the further consequences right, of those. Right, yeah. Critical thinking, you know, when you watch, uh, uh, several of us, I know, probably all of us in English, feel that when we're teaching you to read critically, we're not just teaching you to read a text critically, but to read the world critically, right? To read what's happening around you, to read another person, to read a circumstance, right? Mm. So a situation. So um, practicing that kind of reading all of the time, um, trying to understand when someone speaks to you right what their what their goal is right how you might be able to accommodate that goal how you might be able to object to that goal right so that you're you're engaged in interactions and I think in a, in a very different way uh, methodologies that students can practice being aware right just mm -hmm. being aware of what's going on around you and the kinds of meanings and depth that any kind of rhetorical moment holds and that and that goes for their own words as well right I try to point out that when you say you know mom can I borrow the keys right that, that there's a there's a rhetorical goal <laughs> there and that you might present yourself differently than you would if you were in a different situation with a bunch of friends right and so we just talk about how we're, we're constantly performing in our rhetorical engagements and I think you just Awareness yeah. is, is a simple, simple way to get to that. Okay. Well, we ask everyone, uh, what are some resources mm -hmm. that we can do to learn more about the topics we've talked about today? Mm -hmm. And we hope that there's usually a more um, a, a resource for a broader audience, easily accessible to most people, and then maybe one a bit more advanced or if people wanted to go, go deeper into the research. One should own the Riverside Shakespeare so that you can read a play whenever you want. Um, no, of course, with literature, with, with Shakespeare, I would say um, it's perfectly fine and often desirable, right, to watch a version in addition to reading plays. So you can read plays, but then BBC does some wonderful productions. The Globe Theatre in London now has a lot of materials available online that you can access and you can watch productions that way. I would always encourage people to do that, to go to the Guthrie Theater, see a production. Uh, that's in terms of literature. I would look to the ACE office study abroad offerings. We talked about study abroad and always be aware of what's going on and what your options are. I would encourage students to study a semester abroad, not just to do a summer, um, mm -hmm. but to study a semester abroad. One final question. Yeah, what's... um. What's one book that you would have everybody read before they die, if you could mandate that? <laughs> That's a lot of power. Let's see, which book would I have everyone read? Or maybe before they get too old. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I would have to go with the Shakespeare play. And it would be not because I teach that, although that's part of it, but because Shakespeare is so embedded in our culture, right, that you hear references to it all the time and you might not know so I would probably say Hamlet is an incredibly important text to know but sure I might you don't want to go with Twilight yeah <laughs> I'm sure yes I'm sure I would say Hamlet and I would probably say on the comedy side maybe Twelfth Night uh there's it's a great play for gender um talking about gender and um gender fluidity uh, Shakespeare got pretty creative with that stuff sometimes so I think yeah that's probably what I would say although knowing um knowing the bible is incredibly useful I teach a bible and literature class and reading it in and the bible and literature class is always a great experience because students don't even if they've been raised in a religious environment they don't always know it and um once you once you read the text and you start to catch references everywhere and 
you'll know half of the literary canon if you if you've got the bible under your belt wow okay another informative interview thanks again to dr julie eckerly adam what did we learn today yeah, t- today the, the big takeaway for me was the importance of, of doing the, the kind of hard intellectual labor that is necessary for, for really getting the most out of your education. All, all, all of our classes, you know, as, as liberal arts students, are going to contain a big chunk of reading. My philosophy classes do. You know, we've, we've talked to people who've done history. You're going to be doing a lot of reading there. English, of course, doing a lot of reading. And even in the sciences, there's things that you're going to be reading. And... It, it, it seems that the English major plays a unique role in, in helping students to really think critically about the text that they're looking at. And, you know, Julie just pointed out time and again, like, well, why are they using this word? You know, what is motivating the use of certain kinds of language? What, what is the context in which they're writing to help students better understand exactly what is being said? And so there's, there's a lot that... Um, was new to me in that because I haven't taken a lot of English classes as a philosophy major and as a psychology major. But you know, since I'm doing so much reading across all of my classes, I think those things that she pointed out are valuable even though I'm not an English major. Yeah, all teaching is a form of communication, right? Even if you're self-teaching, then you're in a sense communicating with the author or communicating with yourself. But definitely, if you're in classes, your teacher's communicating with you, your fellow students are communicating with you. So research into or thinking about what is the person trying to communicate with me? What am I? Um, what are the important takeaways for myself to be thinking about if you're self-teaching? What message being sent? Why is it being sent? A number of our guests have mentioned how thinking about the who, what, whys, who's the audience is an important part of critical thinking, of thinking about the context for this and the context for the author in coming to their own thoughts, the context for you coming to your thoughts about what the author is saying and that relationship. You know, Julie mentioned that, um, you know, some people are just really good at being a student. Yeah. And, you know, me, I'm kind of relatively new to college still, and I don't feel as though I've, I've really mastered the being a student part. It's mm-hmm. a lot of organization, you know, a lot of good time management, mm-hmm. these types of skills. And so I'm really interested in, like, mastering that. But, mm-hmm. you know, she put the emphasis on, on that not being all that is, you know, required for getting a good education. Yeah. So I do think that it's good to work on those skills of being a student, and I do think there are tricks of the trade that you can learn over time. There's some evidence that people's lowest grades happen in their first year of college, and they tend to improve if they stick around. Some, mm. you know, drop out or, stu- you know, move on to other things. But if they stick around, they tend to do better. There might be some uh, selection effects there, just like who who makes it. But also, it can be maybe people learning the skills it takes to just do better. Um, she mentioned that if students are motivated to get only a good grade, and that's the key thing, they might do well. They might get good grades, but it's unclear if they're reaching their potential for learning. And as a teacher, we don't view our job as giving out grades. That's a task we have to do at our job. It's required, at least at a school like this. Some schools don't have grades. I don't know if you know that. Wow, where where am but I? <laughs> no, I love you're rethinking you your choices. Yeah. <laughs> um. That's something that we have to do, but it's not something that we 
got into this field for. It's not something that we became teachers to do is to is to give grades. So we're interested in learning. We're interested in helping other people learn, getting them passionate about the things we're passionate about, getting them thinking hard. So if you're strictly motivated by grades, that's going to be fine, and teachers should make it so that their teaching style is compatible with a lot of different motivations from students. Because your job is to teach everyone, right? No matter what their motivations are. But if you want to maximize learning, you got to, in my opinion, I, I agree with Julie, you got to take an extra step beyond just get a good grade. Well, to that point, I, I just think that that's why this conversation was valuable for me because it really gave me some, some new inspiration and some, some new reasons to you know, go that extra mile. And that concludes this episode. Links to the references our guest mentioned can be found in the show notes. Before we go here, a big thank you to the Mellon Foundation and the Humanities Division for supporting this podcast. The views and opinions expressed are solely those of the individuals participating and do not represent the University of Minnesota Morse or the University of Minnesota system. You can find our podcast on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review on the iTunes store or share the podcast with others. Thanks for listening. This has been Humanities Engaged. Mm -hmm.